I trust implicitly the the wisdom, the intellectual smarts, the insight of my readers. I don't think I have to lead them by the hand. I'm Michael Tamblin, CEO of Rakuten Kobo. This is Kobo in Conversation. My guest is the novelist and book designer C.S. Richardson, whose first novel, The End of the Alphabet, won the 2008 Commonwealth Writers' Prize for Best First Book. His new book, All the Color in the World, is a kaleidoscopic novel about a boy's love affair with art and a man's struggle with loss. And while we have him here, I get a chance to talk about his other career as probably Canada's most celebrated book designer. C.S. Richardson, welcome to Kobo. Thanks, Michael. Lovely to be here. This is a beautiful, moving book. It is also a very difficult one to describe. The exceedingly brief intro I just gave it is all I could say to the listener other than you've just got to read it. How do you describe all the color in the world? Oh, boy. It's... uh... It's a mixed bag. It's a it's a, a miscellany of of fiction. There's a liberal sprinkling of sprinkling of nonfiction in there, but in essence, it's the story of one of of an everyman uh, through the trials and tribulations of his life uh, and how he copes with the tr- the trials and ultimately survives. I think. Uh, all through the power of art and his love of art. The book takes its time getting to the protagonist, Henry. It it strolls along without hurry to even confirm that there will be a protagonist in any recognizable sense. (laughs) Can you introduce Henry to us? Well, yes, Henry. Henry is, is a young Torontonian born and raised. Um, he is a boy gifted with, a, one might argue, an over overactive imagination. He loves to he loves his boy's own annuals and his comic book papers. Um, the the novel begins with actually begins with his with his birthday uh, in nineteen. He's born in nineteen sixteen. Um, and we follow him from there on in at various key points in his life. I mean, he, we meet him first when he's a young five-year-old. Uh, we meet him next when he's grown into a preteen and so on. Uh, but at the beginning of the novel, he is a young, very imaginative uh, boy, uh, keeps much to himself and just loves the creativity of of his uh, of his adventure stories and tracing illustrations and whatnot. The opening chapters read like the French novelist uh, Annie Arnaud's *The Years*, where we're almost getting this historical and objective third-person observation, but constantly getting pulled closer and closer to the eye of the observer. Was this a story about Henry? Or did Henry emerge from a story or a feeling you were trying to create? No, this was this began this this began his life as a story about Henry, 
what I was striving to do with the intermingling of the fiction and the nonfiction was to tell Henry's story a slightly different way, um, where, you know, there are only, you know, so many basic stories of, you know, lost and found and loves lost and found and coming of age and, and redemption stories and whatnot. Um, and, you know, Henry, you know, it, this is as much a coming of age story as anything else. Uh, but I wanted to tell that a different way. So it, it initially it was Henry. And then what drove Henry was this profound love of art and how that, how that art and how various aspects of nonfiction uh, informed his life. Henry is an art historian who copies paintings and, and teaches art using the paintings he has copied. He specifically doesn't use the slide trays and carousels of most art historians. The questions surrounding uh, copying and replica, learning through copying, yeah, on one side and then you know, the originality of art on the other side comes up frequently. Uh, was there something specific you were exploring there? I mean, it's a surprising fact about our history and the development of various artists and how they learned their craft and their trade. Um, it, 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 by and large, I mean, whether they were Van Gogh or whether they were Picasso or anyone else who we would who we would think their genius sort of fell from heaven and and was and was landed fully formed. I don't think that's the case. I think the case is that they learned from others. They copied other paintings. They copied artists who had come before. And I think Henry knows that fact and and to and to immerse himself in the works of the people he the art that he is teaching he is copying them and and he is he is trying to bring to life something that under normal 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 circumstances he's you know, I mean, again he's teaching in the 1930s and 40s and the quality of slides and and whatnot and the quality of reproductions in textbooks particularly about art, is not the greatest. So he is trying to bring uh, bring these art artworks to life as close to accurate as humanly possible. That mode of learning art, of, 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 of apprenticeship through replica, kind of reached its end around that time, you know, 1930s, 1940s, after which point um yeah the primacy of the new took over and was there something particular about trying to capture that point in time where where like artistic replica just meant a very different thing than it does now well i mean actually michael you make a very good point that that with the with the growing um prominence of what what the art world terms as non-representational art, i.e. abstract art or expressionist mm -hmm. art. Um, the, the notion of copying your forebears to produce a quality representational art, which is what 
preceded the the modern movement. Um, the notion of that sort of fell by the wayside. I will argue, though, that I would bet you money that that art students today, part of their curriculum, um, is to go into a gallery and sit in front of a classic painting, a, 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 a something by a master, and copy it to learn basic fundamentals of composition, of color, of balance, of line, of, of anatomy, all those kinds of things, whether or not they're going to go on and do representational or non-representational art, that, that remains to be seen. But they, they get that grounding in how their forebearers produced art. This book, with its short chapters and historical interludes, has the feeling of an especially well-curated and impressionistic slideshow. Uh, after the first six or seven, you know, one and two page chapters, you know, you start to feel the rhythm of the book and that shortness starts to feel spacious rather than, than clipped. You said uh, back in an interview, I think more than 10 years ago for your first book, the end of the alphabet, that the words will do the job. You don't have to lead the reader by the hand yeah, and that idea that you can let imagination fill in the blank spaces. Are you intentionally encouraging that kind of engagement of the imagination? Or does that just fit in with the way you like to tell stories? No, I'm intentional. It's, it's, it, it is entirely intentional. I mean, it's, 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 it's the way I like to read. Um, and I trust implicitly the, the, the wisdom, the, uh, the intellectual smarts, the, the, the insight of, of my readers. Um, I don't think I have to lead them by the hand. Again, I, I, I didn't want to lead them by the hand with this one. Mm -hmm. um, I, trust that the, I trust that in fairly short order, even though it is an unconventional structure that I'm using with all the color in the world, um, that they will get it and they, and they will, they will be engaged and they will bring their own sense to bear. It was a very conscious decision in terms of what art that I talked about. Um, it's very difficult to describe a piece of artwork to somebody who's never seen that piece of artwork. So there was a deliberate choice made on certain pieces of art that I knew were popular. I knew that people would have seen them in some guise somewhere along the line. Mm. Um, so that was deliberate. Um, but in terms of, of being as spare and as lean and letting the words do the work, absolutely. It was conscious. And, and I suspect I will continue to do that with the next novel. And then one after that, I will confess, I did a quick count to see if the number of chapters in the book matched up to the, the number of slides in a slide carousel, but it turns out you're about 45 over <laughs> both of the, of, you know, both your first book and this one are certainly the epitome of more with less. Yeah. And and as you say, that's very deliberate on your part. As you're writing, do they start bigger and then get pared back? Or does that economy come naturally to you? 
Boy, oh boy. It's, it depends. I mean, there are certain points in the process where I am paring back, and there are other points in the process where I am struggling to flesh out. Uh, I tend to write lean to begin with, mm-hmm. um, but there are points where, and my editor will attest to this, where where you know I need to add I I need to add more. I'm not giving the reader quite enough. <laughs> there's not leading them by the hand, and then there's abandoning them in the dark. That's exactly it. And you, you use the word you use the term very well. It's uh, yeah, you, you've got to re- it's a it's a balancing act for sure. You've got to you got to you know you've got to tell the story. You have to give the reader certain, you know, benchmarks and certain signposts and certain talismans. Um, so, yeah, it's I think by and large, I mean, I write lean to begin with. So I will write lean. I, it's the kind of book I like to read. I'm, I'm, I'm long done with, you know, the, the doorstop books. Not that there's anything wrong with those books, but I tend to write, I tend to read lean, short for the lack of a better term, European writing, uh, mm-hmm. where the where the doorstop novel isn't quite as prevalent. Was there a particular author, or are there authors who really embody that style for you? Uh, either people that you were inspired by, or just people who make you feel like I'm not alone in this in this form of expression. <laughs> Yeah, there are. There's more than a few. Uh, there is uh, the terrific Italian writer Alessandro Barrico, who his his most notable work that people would know would be Silk, mm-hmm. which is even shorter than all the color in the world. Uh, it is ju- it is a perfect exercise in in concision. Um, the French novelist Jean Auchenaux. Uh, writes very economically and really, really well, and tells a compelling story by doing so. There are some, there are a few Canadians. Uh, Kim Twee is comes to mind. Her novel Rue is something most people would would recognize. Again, a short novel, very lean, very sparse. Um, but in terms of being of telling stories uh, without a lot of um, fireworks or or gymnastics, I would like to say. Um, there's everybody from Keel McClear, who a, I'm, I'm a fan of. Ali Smith in the UK, I love her writing. Uh, nonfiction, Julian Barnes cannot be beat as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Simon Shama, he writes big fat books, but he writes them very, very well. And he writes them, they just clip right along. There's no there's no superfluous fat as far as I'm concerned. You have talked about finding you know, inspiration in art, in paintings, in film, in illustration. Is there a pile of images that gets accumulated as you're working your way through a manuscript? Yeah, absolutely. Certainly in the case of all the color in the world. Um, but yeah, I do a lot of, I did a lot of visual research. I mean, I, I studied art history in university, so I was revisiting some things that I'd learned. I don't want to say how long ago. Um, but uh, there was, there was pieces of art and, and, and circumstances that I didn't know as well as I should have. And so I was accumulating all kinds of art and bits and pieces about art 
um, uh, visual, non-visual. I mean, I, the book is set partly in, in Toronto in the 20s and 30s. Um, and there's no better place to go for archival material than your local archives. I mean, there's a ton of photography that was done during that period. Um, I had a lot of images uh, from the Second World War in Sicily, which is where part of the book is set. Uh, so yeah, I accumulate a ton of stuff. When people buy this book, and it absolutely should for both of our sakes, I will do something that I have never done before and advise people to read the copyright page because it turns out that each surface of the book, front cover, back cover, end papers, flaps, spine, has a different painting on it along with uh, the with paint itself, which is also meticulously credited so that you could be sure that you know the source of each swipe of teal and cadmium yellow and Cambridge blue, yeah. all of which make an appearance in the story. Uh, was there a thought to make this even more illustrated at some point or, um, or is that just a, like a, a book designer who, who can't hold back? <laughs> <laughs> Well, we, I mean, we, we, I mean, the, the book is, has been designed by the formidable Kelly Hill, mm -hmm. who's designed all of my books. She is arguably one of the best book designers working in this country and has been for the last 20 years or more. Um, we did have a meeting, a creative meeting, a design meeting where discussion of concept and direction was had. Um, the, the notion that this book this book could be an illustrated novel, like fully illustrated, is more a notion in my head than anybody else's. Um, I would love if you know my publisher deemed it so worthy that they could do an edition like that. That would be fantastic. Um, but but in terms of what Kelly has done, uh, she's clearly read the book. She's clearly pulled pieces out of the book that would work um, as as either entire images i.e like the front cover photograph um, okay. or as as in details as with the spine or the back cover um, so yeah I mean it's I think it was uh, without speaking for Kelly um, I think it was a labor of love for her because it, mm -hmm. yeah it's a designer dream to have so much visual referencing and so much visual material to choose from. The end of the alphabet was 2008. The emperor of Paris was 2012. And then we had to wait 10, 11 years for, for all the color in the world. Well, thank you for waiting. <laughs> it was, it was well worth the wait. Well, thank you. I'm curious about, what kind of bell goes off that makes you decide it's time for a new book? And what does that part of your brain do in between those times? Uh, the bell went off for all the color, what became all the color in the world shortly after the emperor of Paris was published. I have an idea. I mean, I have a, I have a queue of ideas in my head or script a scrap of paper written down somewhere well, not while I'm working on something else. Mm -hmm. Like I've, I've begun, I've begun preliminary work on my next novel 
and all of the color in the world has just hit the stands. Um, so the bell goes off very early, the bell very, very early in the process. The problem or the, the challenge, it's not really a problem, it's a challenge, <laughs> is, and was for me, is, you know, life gets in the way. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you have a day job and you're raising a family and circumstances being what they are and you're getting through life. And so there's, there's few hours in the day to, to concentrate on the writing. But it's never out of my head. I, I, you know, this, this, all the color in the world has been in my head for 10 years in one form or another. And, you know, you grab a moment here or there. You, you, I mean, I was very lucky. I'll be, I'll be the, probably the only person in the world who said that the pandemic was the best thing that happened to me uh, because suddenly I was freed up. Suddenly mm-hmm. I had lots of time. I was not distracted. I didn't have other things to worry about. And my productivity level just went through the roof at that point. Um, but, but it's always in my head and, you know, and I, I can fully expect whether the next one takes me two years or five years, it'll always be in my head. The bell has gone off. Um, and away we go. But I mean, I just, I don't stop thinking about it as, as the old saying goes, writing is more than typing. And, 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 and for me, it, and for me, it's work. I mean, it's, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't flow out of me like water. Mm-hmm. I work very hard at, at, at my craft and learning my craft. You've had a literally illustrious career as creative director and book designer for Penguin Random House. That's a 40 year span of career. And you retired, is it just recently? I didn't retire. I, I hate the word. I I left Penguin Random House five years ago. Okay, almost a day. So yeah, I've been I've been more or less writing quote unquote full time for the last five years. I'd love to go to the beginning of your design career for a moment and just talk a bit about how you started, how you how you got into that work. I fell into it. I mean, it's literally, I answered an ad in the paper. I, I come out of university uh, where I had spent a fair amount of time working in graphic design and graphic arts and, and whatnot uh, as, as part of my art history training. Um, and so I came out of university looking for a job. Um, and I answered an ad for a small publishing house. Uh, they were looking for a, what they called a promotions assistant. Uh, whose one of many responsibilities was to design their book catalogs. <clears throat> Just back in the day when publishers had catalogs. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was my first gig in publishing. Um, and while I was there, I was lucky enough to, to, have, to work with a production manager. The, the publishing house where I worked, you know, they published a few titles, not very many. And I asked the production manager if I could take a run at a book design and a book cover design mm-hmm. at that point he said sure absolutely and i you know fell in love with the process i fell in love with with working for something that was that tangible i.e a book that would hopefully last for a while um and quickly discovered that designing books is like designing nothing else because every book is different Every single book is different. There's no, there's no template. At least there, there shouldn't be. Uh, but for me, there was no template for a book. Everyone was treated differently. 
uh, and uh, and the ability and the the collaborative aspect of working with editors and with authors, I just found oh stimulating. One of the reasons I ask is because the the whole idea of commercial art versus non-commercial art comes up in the book. You mention N.C. Wyeth, the you know the American yeah. realist painter, gifted collaborator with authors, um, who grew to resent depending on commercial work to support his career. Yeah. Did you ever find you came into it through through design? So. It, you kind of your expectations were fairly well set. Did you ever find yourself working with people who struggled with that divide? Wow, yeah, the, the odd time. I mean, I, I I worked with some authors who who were very concerned about the aesthetic of their book covers. We'll talk about book covers. Mm -hmm. For me, cover design is book design. It's, I mean, I'm designing the whole book inside and out. Um, I worked with some authors who were very concerned about the, the aesthetic of their covers, uh, and to the to the point of nitpickingish and 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 you know wringing of hands and whatnot, um, without much thought as to how that book was going to look on a shelf, how it was going to look in an ad, whether that ad be online or in print. Um, so there was there was some gentle sort of hand-holding as, as you know, it wasn't just me, it was, you know, the author's editor, the publisher, the sales department, the marketing department, all of whom, you know, we, we worked in tandem to do as gently as possible, convince the author that aesthetics are great, but if nobody can see the book or if nobody can understand what that cover is in one form or another, if it's so intellectual and so esoteric, that people are just not interested, then they're just doing the book a disservice. Mm -hmm. um, so, so there was that the odd time. Most, but most authors I dealt with, and certainly editors, and uh, and you know the people in the publishing game, um, were well aware that that as as artistic as literature is, there's a certain there's a certain element of commercial involved in every book. Whether you, whether you, you know, whether you're Michael Andache or or Stephanie Meyer, in that interaction with the author, the emotional stakes are high. Oh yeah, I'm curious about in the management of that dynamic. Was that something that you got better at over time, over the course of your career? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I was doing it for a long time, so yeah. I would hope I got better at it but you're absolutely right i mean particularly with first novelists and and first time authors uh fiction or non-fiction they these are their babies um and i i constantly reminded myself of that fact that that while you know while i was working on the project i might be working on it for six months and then i'd be on to the next thing mm -hmm. uh at the publishing house for them this was their life's work they were going to have to live with this book for the rest of their lives. They had lived with it for who knows how long. I mean, some people write 20 years before they finally get a book deal. Um, so I was very cognizant of that fact. And, and you know, so you, you tend to be as gentle as humanly possible. That said, 
most of the authors I dealt with, whether they were first timers or whether they were vets, um, were very appreciative. And, you know, were, were, it was like, it was like magic. You know, they would come in with this manuscript and then the next thing you knew, it, they, you would show them a visual interpretation of that manuscript. And they just thought it was like you were pulling rabbits out of hats. It was, they really, really enjoyed the process. Yeah, it was, uh, it, that was really a lot of fun. I mean, when to see an author see their cover for the first time, <laughs> it's really, it's, it's really good. I bet. Some designers have their, have their moment and then fade. You kept evolving and changing through your entire career. Was there, yep. was there ever a time when you felt out of step or pushing against the tastes of, uh, of the time? No, never. I don't, I don't think I ever felt that at all. I mean, I, what, what drove every design I did, uh, you know, throughout the years was the book itself. Mm -hmm. What was the book I was working on? What was that content of that book? What, you know, what were the hopes and fears of the publishing house for the content of that book? Whether it was novel, whether it was nonfiction, every book was special. Every book was different. So I, I didn't worry, you know, if, if something I did was going to be out of step, didn't even think about it, but if something I did was going to be out of step, that meant that the book was out of step. And I don't think many publishers publish books that are out of step. Um, no, I just, I, I didn't care about trends. I mean, obviously I followed them. I looked at them. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, I admire a lot of my former colleagues and, and fellow designers, both at Penguin Random House and elsewhere. And, you know, I, I cheer them on as, as anybody would. But I wasn't worried about whether, you know, red was the color du jour or whether this typeface was better than that typeface. <laughs> if it fit with the, with, with the project I was working on, then I would use it. Your time in book design spanned almost 40 years. Yep. Could you isolate some things that have changed about how publishers think about books as visual objects? Oh boy. Um, I think the biggest effect or the, the, the biggest factor in, in book design and particularly cover, we'll talk about cover design again. I think the, the advent of, of digital marketing, Mm -hmm. uh, of 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 ebooks. I mean, the, the format itself, but primarily the marketing. You know, online on a digital format on a website. That that has driven, or not driven, but but it has heavily influenced cover design. I think over the last well twenty years, I would guess fifteen years. Um, that's. I mean, you know, again, going back to what does that book look like on a shelf? Well, if that shelf is the size of a postage stamp and it's on a website, that's going to dictate to a certain extent what you do mm -hmm. um, and how you treat, you know, type and how you treat an image and what kind of images you pick. So that's, that's been certainly a, dis a determining factor is, is the, the advent of digital marketing and, and to a lesser extent ebook, but uh, because an ebook cover by and large is a cover cover. Mm -hmm. So, but yeah, that, I think that's it where, where you've moved away from, from not necessarily the physical book, but, but, you know, you're reproducing the, the cover of the book, very small, 
or in a very different way, um, you know, and there's no two devices that will show you the same JPEG or, <laughs> right. or PDF. So, you know, if you, you could spend months worrying about the color, the, the color palette of your book cover, but, you know, on somebody's phone, it's going to look like this. And on somebody's iPad, it's going to look like that. And, so yeah, it's uh, it's a bit of a tough road to hold, but uh, but you know it's a, again it's a challenge, and you and you overcome it as best you can. One thing I'm curious about, and it's you know I've I've got you here, so you know I have to ask. It it, it seemed to me that as that um as that focus on finding covers that work well in a in a digital environment was was getting embedded in publisher's design practice on one side. There also seemed to be a turning towards making those books that would be in stores more beautiful physical objects. Yep. Yeah. It seemed like we saw, you know, kind of materials get richer and, um, and both, you know, internal and cover design get, uh, get more focus on it as, as publishers were trying to make sure that the things that did go into stores were compelling as objects. Absolutely. No, I, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, for myself, I was, I was fundamentally concerned. I mean, that you, if we, if you step back and you, you're asking a consumer to spend, I mean, these days it's, it's, you know, it's getting into the, you know, $40 and plus for a novel, you know, you're asking the consumer to plunk down a fair amount of money you want to give them their money's worth. And if that means a better grade of paper, or if that means a little bit more bells and whistles when it comes to the jacket or the cover, i.e. embossing or foiling or die cutting or whatever, uh, if, you're, you know, if it means printing something on the end papers, then so be it. I mean, I, I was a huge champion of considering the book as an object um, and and hopefully giving a consumer their money's worth, you know, over and above whether the book was was a compelling story or if it was a great novel or not. I was worried about it as an object as much as anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, and I think I think as time as techno as as printing technology as design technology made things a little bit easier and more efficient to do. Um, then, then, yeah, the, the, the need and the desire to make a physical object as best as you could only got better. And so now we can, we can all begin our campaign for the fully illustrated, richly produced, (laughs) expanded edition of all the color in the world. Here's the ironic thing. I mean, I never thought about it as an illustrated book. Until I was done. After I'd finished with the editorial process and I'd gone through that with my esteemed editors and whatnot, mm-hmm. uh, it occurred to me one day, I went, man, this would make a really nice illustrated book. It really would. <laughs> it really would. But um, that's, now we're talking huge and expensive. And, you know, you want to, you want to give the, 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 the consumer their money's worth. It's going to cost them a fortune. It'd be worth it. And yeah, I mean, and it goes, and I think it goes back to my days as a designer, a book designer. I mean, my favorite books to design were illustrated books because it was just so much to do. To the point, I mean, I loved designing cookbooks. 
because there was so much going on. But illustrated books were my fave. Now that you aren't having to supervise a creative department and a pipeline of new books, does that mean <laughs> we might see a next novel from C.S. Richardson you know, in less than 10 years? I'm, I'm not asking for a lot. I'm just asking for less than a decade for the next one. You can you can rest assured it will be less than a decade, or I will die in the attempt. I'm telling you. <laughs> I mean, I love all the color in the world to death, but ten years with that is is that's plenty. That's more than enough. Excellent. I've started to work on the next one, and uh, you know, again, um, my my time is a little more free than it used to be. So yeah, I think I can safely safely say it's going to be much less than ten years. Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Michael. It was a real pleasure. It's great to talk about design. It's great to talk about books. Just, yeah, absolutely. Really enjoyed it. I've been speaking with the novelist C.S. Richardson. His new novel is All the Color in the World. Find it and all the other books that we've talked about at hobo.com slash conversation or tap the link in the show notes. Wherever you're listening right now, also tap the subscribe button so you don't miss any of the fantastic author interviews we're lining up for 2023. Hobo in Conversation is produced by Nathan Maharaj. I'm Michael Tamblin. Thank you for listening.